If you've got your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Ephesians chapter 5. Last week we started a series of messages on marriage. We talked about last week that it's going to be a series that focuses not so much on particulars, uh, what not to do or what to do in marriage, but it's going to be more about what the intention of marriage is, of what marriage is supposed to be about. And in Ephesians chapter 5, there is a specific section on marriage. Now, the thing is, we are the second week into this series on marriage, and we're not going to get to that section yet. We'll get there next week. What we're doing is we're building the foundation for what we're supposed to be doing. And last week, if you were here and remember, we talked about walking and love, and we compared the world system defining love versus what God's Word teaches us about marriage. Um, one of the reasons that it's important for us to get this right is not just because it's a biblical mandate, although that's pretty important, but because statistics show that marriage is beneficial to the people that are married in almost every way. That when people who are married stay married and stay that way for a long time, there are physical benefits, there are physically healthier than people that are unmarried. There are financial benefits. The, the fact is, I read a study this week that said that men who are married and stay married have more money by 75% than those who don't. So if you want to be rich, it's not a get-rich-quick scheme, it's a long-term scheme, but you stay married, all right? It, it, it's emotionally beneficial, and and, and some of the world out there tries to paint all these pictures that it can be bad for you. Uh, you know, um, you know I, I'm, one of the things that I, when I do wedding ceremonies, I get to usually hang around with the groomsmen for a little bit before the actual wedding. And some of the things that the groomsmen say, I won't reveal any names or sources, in the back room when we're getting ready to walk out aren't always the most encouraging words to the groom, right? I mean, they're ball and chain references and last moments of freedom kind of references. But the truth is, marriage is beneficial in a multitude of ways. And so we want to make sure that we, from God's Word, get it right. Now, what we're going to look at today is the passage of Scripture immediately before we get to wives do this and husbands do that. And the reason is, is because that passage where it says, as many of you that have grown up in church have know and have heard, wives submit to your husbands, and husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church, that is part of a bigger section. And any time in Scripture when you take something out of where it's supposed to be, it can be dangerous because you might miss the full intention. And so in Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse uh, 22, or excuse me, verse 15, we're going to look at a few passages of Scripture. And here's what I will say. Today in particular, whether you are married or unmarried, whether you have been married or you have yet to been married, today in particular, these verses are going to speak to life in general. Now, we're going to talk about some specific applications in your marriage. But these, these principles are true for the way you treat people 
and live your life in general. Chapter 5, starting in verse 15. Pay careful attention then to how you walk. Not as unwise people, but as wise. Making the most of the time because the days are evil. So, don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. And don't get drunk with wine, which leads to reckless actions, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making music to the Lord in your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. And so these these few verses are going to give us some needed information for living the Christian life. And the first thing that these verses are going to tell us to do is that we are to pay careful attention to how we live. We are to pay very close attention to how we live. I was reading this week, I was actually preparing on Monday mornings, we have our staff meeting and um, and we rotate in there who's doing devotional for the week. And it was my week to do devotional. And, you know, when you're the pastor, you kind of expected to have a pretty good devotional at staff meeting. And so I was studying and looking through, and there was this quote that I found from C.S. Lewis that said that the most difficult thing we do every morning or every day of our lives is to wake up and instead of just jumping full force into the day ahead of us, to push back all of the concerns that may be coming our way, and for a moment to reflect on what it means to be a follower of Christ in that day. Any of you here ever wake up with things on your mind about what you have to get done? Anybody? Anybody ever go to bed at night thinking about all that you have to do the next day? All right? It's amazing how our minds begin to race from the moment we wake up of our to-do list or the things that didn't get done from the night before, what has to be going on, and how that sometimes that motivates us to get up and get going, and sometimes it is one of those things that's like a weight hanging over you. But the truth is, what the Scripture says here is that every moment of our lives, we ought to be paying attention. The, the actual word there means to keep a close count or to make sure you're accounting for everything or to live in a way that you're thinking about what you're doing. Paul here uses the word walk again. He's used it many times in Ephesians. He used it where we talked last week and in the first part of chapter 5. He used it in chapter 4 verse 1 about living a life or walking worthy of the calling. The idea that Paul wants us to get is, as a believer in Jesus Christ, your life ought to be completely different than those who are not followers of Jesus Christ. If you are a believer in Jesus, it ought to impact you in such a way that it changes everything about who you are. About the way you think, about the way you talk, about the way you act, about where you go, about what you do. You ought to be impacted in every way possible as a believer in Jesus Christ. And he says, you need to examine your life and see if Jesus has made a difference or not. Here's the reality. If what we believe about Jesus is true, that He is God's Son, sent to earth, 
lived a perfect life, was crucified for our sins, rose again from the grave, and is alive today, and that if we believe in Him, His Spirit lives within us, then there is no way we can live life like everybody else. It has to change who we are. Now what Paul's going to say in the next few verses is, this is how it ought to change you. And then, in verse 22 and following, he's going to say, specifically, it ought to change the way you relate to one another in marriage. Paul's idea here is that our lives are a testimony unto the Lord is. And he gives us three things that we ought to be doing. Three things that we ought to be thinking about. And the first then, he says, pay careful attention to how you walk. He says, not as unwise people, but as wise. He uses the, the same root word and one says, just don't be unwise, be wise. Now, when you look throughout scripture, wisdom means to apply what you already know. Or to take the truth of God and to live it out in a way that testifies to that truth. That gives witness to the truth. That allows people to see who God is. And he tells us this interesting thing in verse 16. What he basically says is, pay careful attention. Here's some way to pay careful attention. Make sure you're not living as unwise. Verse 16 says, and the way that you live as a wise person is you make the most of your time. It's an interesting word there. Some other translations use the word redeem. Now, redeem is not one of those things that we, we use a lot. In fact, in today's world, if you talk about redeeming something, you're talking about turning in a certificate and getting something back. But in their day and time, what it literally meant was to buy back or to purchase something. And so what he's saying here is, you need to buy back your time. Or purchase time. The idea is what it says in this translation, to make the most of every opportunity you have been given. Let me just ask you a real, um, just a real question here. Do you wake up in the morning and honestly think about how you can make the most of your time for the kingdom of God that day? I started just to say, make the most of your time, but some of you do that. How can I make the most of my time to make more money today? Or how can I make the most of my time to, to get ahead in my career? How can I make the most of my time to get ahead in my schoolwork? Or how can I make the most of... Some of you don't even think about that. You just get up and go. But some of you, when you think about it, you're not thinking about God's kingdom. And what Paul is talking about here is not just making the most of your time for self-fulfillment and self-achievement and getting rich and making a career and getting good grades in school and making good relationships and seeing that person you want to see. What Paul means here is that we are to make the most of every opportunity we are given in a day for the glory of God and the advancement of His kingdom. That's what he means. So is that on your agenda in the morning? You say, Brother Lyle, you don't know my life. It is boring. Or, it's so hectic I don't have time to think about that kind of stuff. Well, Paul says, if we're going to be followers of Christ, we must take time to think about what impact am I going to make today for the kingdom of God. There's an interesting, I actually haven't seen the movie, but I saw 
the previews for this movie that came out, I, I guess a few months ago. It's out on, uh, it's probably out on DVD now. But uh, it, it's a, a movie called End Time, I think. But the, the point of it is that in the future, some advancement will come along and the wealthier you are, the more time you will have left in your life. And the goal of the movie is you purchase time regularly. You get time allotments. Instead of going to the bank and getting some cash, you get time filled in on your life. As I saw the prison, oh, that's kind of weird. And then I started to think, you know, I, I think the commodity in our life that we spend the most recklessly is our time. The commodity in your life that you spend the most recklessly Maybe your time. And what Paul says is, if you want to be a follower of Jesus, you need to pay attention to what you're doing. So he says, make the most of your time. Here's what I would say about how that impacts marriage. Because Paul wants this as the background for what comes later. The point is that in a marriage, especially if you have kids or even if you're in that empty nest stage and you're both working or you're retired, what he says is to make the most of the time you have together. Do not waste it, but to spend it with one another in meaningful ways. Here's the second thing he says. Not only don't be unwise, but be wise. He says, don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. The word foolish there actually means don't be mentally deranged. Don't be mentally deceived. Don't be someone who doesn't have a clue what's happening in life. It says that we are to not be foolish, but we're to understand. And the idea is that we're to bring all these things together. The, the word understand there literally means to gather together a bunch of stuff and bring them together in a way that makes sense. And so part of what we are to do as we're thinking about our life is to take all the stuff we know about God and we're to bring it together in a way that makes complete sense. We are to understand what the Lord intends. It says we understand what the Lord's will is. In church cycles when we say, what's God's will for your life? Most of the time we mean by that question, where does God want you to go to school? Or what does God want you to do for a job? Or who does God want you to marry? What's the Lord's will for your life? But what this means is not that. What this means is that we are to live our lives with an understanding of the overall story of what God is doing, and we are to plant our lives in the midst of that. The truth is, the Lord's will is much bigger than your individual life. The Lord's will is much grander than what you're going to do specifically. That doesn't mean He's not concerned about it. He's concerned infinitely about you. But your life is a part of the bigger picture of His will. And what Paul is telling them is, you remember everything I said in Ephesians chapter 1-3 through 3 about what God has done, how He's redeemed you, how He saved you, how He died for your sins, how He rose again, how He wants you to be propelled out into the community so that people can see who He is and understand who He is, and that it's all moving towards a conclusion one day. Um, on Wednesday night, I've mentioned this several times, we're going through the book of Revelation, and uh, um, one of the things that happens when you read the book of Revelation is it's really easy to get really confused really quickly. 
Amen? Anybody ever tried to read it? Okay? It's easy to get confused really quickly. And I started looking back through my notes, okay, through what I've been teaching. And each week I don't prepare based on what I did the week before necessarily. Now, I remember it sometimes, but I'm preparing new and fresh. And I started to look back through my outlines. And my outlines in the book of Revelation were all basically the same two things. God's going to protect His people, and He is going to come again. All right? And we, as our job, is to proclaim His coming again. And I I looked, you know what? That's not a bad outline. I'll just keep it. We'll just keep running with it. Because the story of Revelation is that when you are one of God's people, He's going to take care of you. That doesn't mean that you're going to have everything you ever wanted. Amen? It doesn't mean, and I asked this on Wednesday night, that you will never be sick. Anybody been sick here in the last year? Had anything, all right? We're going to get sick. We're not going to make it. We're going to have financial things that don't go our way. We're going to have things that go in a place that we don't want them to go. The point is God's going to protect His people, and it's all moving towards a conclusion. You say, Pastor, when's that going to happen? I don't have a clue. It's probably not going to happen this year. Well, it might, but probably not whenever the Mayans predict it, okay? You've seen that, right? 2012 is the, get all your things in order, all right? I got a, I got a flyer. They, other churches don't know that I'm not, I'm the pastor of this church, and so I get invited to other churches all the time, all right? Flyers in the mail, different things, and some church is going to tell you about all that stuff. I, I don't know, if, if I, I couldn't sit up here and tell you for sure everything I know about Revelation, because it wouldn't be a very long sermon, okay? The point is, God's moving towards that place. And our job, our responsibility, is to find our place in that grander story of God's glory and the fact that His people are going to be redeemed and saved. And that we are to do our part. When it says that we are to understand the Lord's will, it doesn't mean necessarily there, understand whether or not I'm supposed to go to this new job or stay where I am. Although that might be a part of it. What our job is, is that we are to do whatever the Lord needs us to do and wants us to do and what's beneficial for the kingdom of God and the glory of His name. And here's the third one, alright? So the first one is, don't live as unwise, but wise. The second one is, don't be foolish, but be understanding. And the third one is this, don't get drunk, alright? That sounds like a good Baptist sermon, doesn't it? Don't get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, nobody really knows why he said don't get drunk with wine. We don't know if there was a problem in this church with that. We don't know if there was a cult that was around that was uh, trying to get people to do that. We don't know if he was just saying that as a general rule. Hey, listen, don't get drunk because it's not good. We do know that Scripture teaches that drunkenness is always bad. Okay, But what... he wanted to portray is the contrast between someone who is consistently out of their mind because of abuse of a substance and those who are consistently out of their mind because the Spirit of the Lord has grabbed hold of their lives. He says there's consequences to both kind of lifestyle. And the truth is, it doesn't really matter whether it's alcohol or something else. What he basically means is, 
don't let yourself be controlled by something else. I've mentioned uh, before that my, my grandfather, I don't know if I've mentioned this, my grandfather was at Pearl Harbor, was, was in, when, it, when they bombed Pearl Harbor, he was there, but it, it wrecked his life. And in fact, uh, after that, he, he became an alcoholic. And when I hear my dad describe, I never met my grandfather, he died early because of his alcoholism. When I hear my dad describe my grandfather's life, it was a life completely consumed by alcohol. Dad tells this story about one Christmas they got ready to open presents. And he couldn't remember where he hid the presents because he'd been drinking that night. And so they've got this idea that they don't know where it is. They don't know where to go. They don't know where to look. He tells a story about... Um, Growing up in places and being taken, and my dad as a, as a 10, 11, 12 year old would be picked up sometimes by other family members at a local bar where my dad, or my dad's dad had taken him. What Paul is saying here is, and it doesn't have to be alcohol, don't allow your life to be so consumed or filled with the pursuit of something else that you push out what the Lord intends. Now, for you, it might be an issue with an alcohol that you've had. Or it might be an issue with career or job or family. An issue where something other than the Lord is controlling you. He says, be filled with the Spirit. Allow the Spirit to control your life. Allow God to be in control of what you're doing. And then he tells us, these are the results of that. And it's some, some things that come naturally out of that kind of life. Here's what happens when you're filled with the Spirit. You speak to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, seeking and making music to the Lord in your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, and submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. And so he says the first thing that happens is when you give your life over to the Lord and allow Him to control you, you will be unbelievably happy, excited, joyful. You ever had one of those moments in your life when you just couldn't help but singing or, or shouting or being excited about something? Apparently not. Well, y'all are an unfun bunch, alright? There was a basketball game yesterday. By the way, I don't know whether you know this or not, but uh, there may be bigger Kentucky fans normally in this room, but I'm a pretty big Kentucky fan today, all right? They win Tennessee's number two in the SEC. Unbelievable. Amen. There we go. Yesterday, there was a, 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 there was a game yesterday. Tennessee played Vanderbilt. Uh, we were doing work around the house, spring cleaning, all that stuff. Time kind of snuck up on me, and the game was already in progress. Now, I'm not superstitious, but I do think I can jinx my team, all right? And so I look at the score, and Tennessee's up by six. And I think, man, i got to watch this. If they're winning, i got to watch it. So I turn it on. Tennessee doesn't hit a shot for three minutes. So I turned it off and went back to work, all right? But I got back on, saw the score. I felt confident to turn it back on when there were 11 seconds left in the game. Figure, I, even I can't jinx them that bad, all right? So I turn the game back on, and Tennessee wins, as, you know, 
if you follow the game, all right? And there's a guy that's played on that team that looks like he's 85 years old. His name is Cameron Tatum. He's played there all four years. He started. He just looks like an older gentleman, all right? And in the midst of the game, he wins, and his entire team gathers around him and just bear hugs him. Just lifts him up, celebrating, shouting, yelling, clapping, having a good time. You see, the reality is, when you realize something amazing has happened, you just want to shout. This week, we were, uh, I shared this with somebody, we were at a movie, and I was with the two boys, and Luke's at that age where he doesn't yet know that the movies are going to end well. You know what I mean by that? That He still gets worried and concerned, and we're in a particular movie, and there was a race going on, and right at the end... The good guy passes the bad guy to win the race. Now, those of us that have been part of movies for our lives go, yeah, that we know that was going to happen. Luke was experiencing as if he didn't have a clue. Now, it was a well-attended movie. There were three people in the theater. Luke, Eli, and myself. All right? And so as as the race ends, Luke literally jumps out of his seat and says, And he looked at me, he won! Like, I think he, <laughs> I think he realized a little later that he may have been a little over-exuberant, you know? Because he looked at me and says, Daddy, whenever you get to your favorite part of the movie, you can yell wahoo too, alright? The point is, what Paul says is, when you realize and are controlled by the Spirit, the natural thing is you will celebrate. Now how does he say you're going to celebrate there? What does he say you're going to do? You're going to sing. Right? He actually says it. There are four ways that you are going to know the spirits in your life, and two of them are singing. Isn't that kind of crazy? I mean, there are four ways. He he lists four. in In the language, there are four markers to identify this is what it is. And the first one is speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Now, that doesn't mean that you're just talking the lyrics of a song. When you speak to one another in songs, you're singing. And in case you didn't get it, you're then going to sing songs. That's what the second one says. You're going to sing, and then you're going to sing. The idea is that your life ought to be just... An extension of the joy. Now, I thought about, now how do you apply this in Scripture? And I, you don't need a musical to break out in your marriage. Right? If you're putting this to marriage into your life, you don't need to sing to one another your daily routine. Unless that's what you like to do, I guess, alright? But the point is that joy ought to be a part of who you are. You ever met somebody that looks like they're mad to be at church? You ever met? I have. I won't name names, but I have. They're just like they are just frustrated beyond all belief. they got their mouths closed and you can see the, the lines on the forehead. I'm convinced there are people that wouldn't have wrinkles if they didn't have to go to church. They just get upset about it. I have never, for the life of me, understood that. I'm going to tell you that, and this is an honest admission, I look forward to being at church every time I'm here. I get, I mean, why would I not? 
I get to be around some really great people. I get to be around people that I love and care about, that I'm doing life together with. I get to be in a place where I'm going to sing praises to the Lord, or I'm going to eat at a table with some friends, or we're going to talk about some great things and what the Lord's doing in our lives. Why in the world would there ever be a reason to be mad when you're celebrating the Lord? Paul says, if your life is filled with the Spirit, joy will just naturally flow out of you. Not only joy, but verse 20 says, giving thanks for everything. You say that with me? For everything. Say for everything. Does that say for some things? Does it say for good things? Does it say for things you like? No. It says for what? Everything. That doesn't mean you give thanks just like, God, I'm so glad you sent it my way, but you give thanks to the Lord for what He's done in the midst of everything. You give thanks to the Lord. And here's the last thing, submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. Now we're going to talk a little bit more about submission next week. Because that's the word that really trips people up when we get to this passages of Scripture. So I'll give you that idea. We're going to talk more about that. This is what Paul basically says. When your life is controlled by the Spirit, your self-centeredness takes a back seat. Do you realize we're all self-centered people? Amen? We are. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago with the pictures. And when you look at a picture, how do you know if it's a good picture? You know by... How you look in it, alright? And the world will teach us that the, the, the reason that we have love and the reason that we have marriage is because that is what's supposed to bring us fulfillment in life. It's supposed to fulfill us. Here's what God's Word says. Are you ready for this? God's Word says basically, if in life you're seeking fulfillment in and of itself, then you won't find it. But if in life you are seeking the Lord and His will, not only will you get that, but you'll get fulfillment in the process. When it comes to marriage, if you're seeking fulfillment in your spouse and in your spouse alone, guess what? You're not going to get it. But if in marriage you're submitting to one another and you are seeking fulfillment in Christ and what He's called you to do, and as a result you're going to get that, a great marriage and be fulfilled in who you are. That's what he says in Matthew chapter 6, right? Seek first what? Personal fulfillment? Is that what it says? What does it say? Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and then everything will be added. Alright? Next week we're going to launch into what this particular verse, submission, means for the marital relationship. But here's my question. What does your life look like? Is it a life characterized by walking carefully, paying attention to who you are? Living as wise, someone that is making the most of every opportunity? Are you someone that's understanding your place in the grand story of life and that you're moving towards that? And are you someone that is filled with the Spirit? That your life is filled with joy as you are, can't help to express it? That your life is filled with thanks and that you are consistently putting yourself in a place of service towards other people. What Paul basically says at the end, that submitting to one another, is that for believers in Jesus Christ, it ought to radically alter how we treat other people. 
It ought to radically alter how we deal with other people. So let me ask you a question. Has your life been radically altered? 